Welcome to Dumb Love. I'm Sally Brooks. And I'm Jen O'Neill-Smith, and this is a podcast about all the dumb things that people will do for love. So welcome to episode 55. Happy Happy anniversary. Happy anniversary, Sally. Jen. You guys, it's our one year anniversary. We did it. We did it. I know. I can't believe it was just a year ago that we were sitting in Max's room on the floor because it was we thought that was the only place we could record. Yeah. But who knew? <laughs> you could sit at a table. It turns out you can sit at, it turns out you can sit in two separate houses. <laughs> turns out you can use microphones. Um, man, I'm so like I'm really happy and I'm grateful for all of you guys for listening. I'm really proud of us for doing an entire year. We're going to keep doing more. Yeah. I was thinking about it because I had bought our domain name and I remember I was like, I bought this for a year, so we have to do this for at least a year. And we were like, okay, we're going to do it. And now I'm like, why would we stop? Why would we? Did you renew our domain name? I did renew. Kind of <laughs> just putting it out there for people to steal. Okay, cool. I did renew. It's it. ours, so don't even think about it. And you guys can go see our website at dumblovepodcast.com. Great idea. Yeah. Sweet. Should we get into some quickies? I say yes. Okay, let's do it. Okay, you're first this week. Okay, I am first. I know I've mentioned this before, probably several times on this podcast, but I love restaurants. <laughs> I love eating at them. I love being inside of them. I love, you know, being somewhere else other than my home. Uh-huh. I love ordering things and having people bring it to me. Yeah. Uh, I like to not have to make my own cocktails. Mm-hmm. Um, but we are in a pandemic. And uh, although that some restaurants are, are opening up now for indoor seating, I'm not quite there. I'm not quite there either. I'm not quite there. But this article for um, BuzzFeed.com written by Evelina Zaragoza Mendina mm-hmm. gives us a look inside. I um, Oh, I forgot to say, what I miss most about restaurants are the servers. I miss servers. Oh. They're always so great to talk to Yeah, wonderful. I don't ask for recommendations like my husband does, <laughs> but I don't want to annoy the servers. I'm grateful for the servers. But... I never thought about the fact that while everybody is going on bad dates all the time and drama ensues between couples, I never thought about the fact that servers are the flies on the wall for all of this. Oh, yeah. So they see all of it. So this article is them sharing 20 different waiters share um, stories about dates that went horribly wrong. I love it. Yeah, it's so good. I totally recommend that you go back and you read the whole article, but I just pulled some of my favorite little stories. Like this one. This one was sent by a server, a server, <laughs> server baby, um, a server called Pana Place 3. Uh, he said, a guy and a girl were fondling each other at the bar I worked at when a second guy joined and they quickly separated and behaved. The three of them went off into the casino but came back for drinks a few times. 
Early in the morning, the second guy came back for a shot, and he said that he said had a couple of hours to kill before his plane left. We got to chatting, and he told me that he had just broken up with his girlfriend because he suspected that she had been having sex with his friend when he couldn't find either of them for an hour. I asked if it was the guy and girl I saw them with, and he confirmed it, and I let him know that he was making the right choice because they were making out at the bar before he came down. He thanked me for confirming, and he left me a huge tip. An hour or so later, the friend and the now ex-girlfriend were at the bar whispering and arguing. I asked if everything's okay, and they said that they were locked out of the room and couldn't find their friend who paid for the room. They tried to charge the bill to the room, too, but my computer showed that the room was empty, and they had a complete meltdown. (laughs) (laughs) Man. Oh, this one is kind of funny. This is a crazy breakup. Okay, water. this is written by Water Your Damn Plant. All right. All right. (laughs) A guy made a reservation at our most popular table. It was by the window, very romantic and super visible from any part of the restaurant. He came in dressed up with a suitcase. Strange, but okay. A few (laughs) minutes later, his date arrived. They laughed and flirted. (laughs) We actually thought it was an an anniversary and that he was going to propose or something the way it was going, but nope. Halfway through the evening, she started screaming. He had broken up with her and actually packed her suitcase. Then he paid and left her there sobbing at the table alone. We got her a brownie on the house. <laughs> what kind of establishment? Was I was thinking when she was like, it's the best seat, I would, that it was a fancy restaurant, and then they're bringing a brownie. Now it makes me feel like it's a I know, TGI you're Fridays. Right. <laughs> Better be like one of those super molecular... Right. <laughs> <laughs> What's the top chef guy that always uses... Richard Blaze. A Richard yeah. Blaze brownie. <laughs> Better be smoking or something. Okay, I'm going to read two more quick ones. Okay. This one is by Alexaline22. I was a waitress at IHOP. I was a waitress once at IHOP. Were you? In high school because it was one of the only restaurants that would hire you if you were um, right, under you. 18. Because yeah. they didn't serve alcohol. I was a waitress at IHOP when a guy and his girlfriend came in along with the girl's best friend. At one point, the girl's boyfriend and her friend both went to use the restroom. A longer than normal time passed, and the girlfriend figured out that they were up to something. She didn't even go into the bathroom to check it out. She just knew. Sure enough, my manager walked in on the boyfriend and bestie having sex on the floor <gasps> of the men's bathroom. In an IHOP? Yes. Oh, dude. It said, this happened a long time ago, and I just remember being so confused and wondering why would they have sex on the floor instead of standing. Floors are so dirty. <laughs> <laughs> and what is with all these people going out to eat with the person they're treating on with, the, with their significant right. other? Just don't. Just don't. Just don't. But this is the one last quick one. I thought it was really funny. But it says, I worked at a restaurant in Vail, Colorado. I once saw a lady throw red wine all over a guy's shirt and leave. He remained seated and continued eating his spaghetti. No fucks given. (laughs) And the reason I thought that was so funny was because I could totally see Zach, my husband, doing that. Just just keep eating. Eye on the prize. The food's in front of his face. He's not going to waste a good meal. Just like he, he, he has tunnel vision if there's food. It's like, yeah. So those are my quickies, but go back and read the other ones because they're all really, really funny. I love that. I was trying to think if I had any good ones from when I was a waitress for a million years, but I don't, I can't remember. It was too long ago. I can't remember 
either except the only thing I do remember was when I was a bar back at this place called the Leper Lounge. It was not a strip club. It sounds like a it strip does club. sound it's like not. a strip club. It's just like swanky uh, place in Midtown. And I remember a couple asked me to um, go home with them. Ooh, and I did not. But now I'm kind of like. I probably should have. Could have been an adventure. But at the time, I was like, no. <laughs> I got propositioned one time when I was on the road in Iowa at a, this Cedar Falls, Iowa. I think that's right. Not very many people in the audience. And there was this couple that were maybe in their 50s. And they were the best audience members. They were laughing at everything. They were loving it. They looked very kind of conservative, like mom and dad-ish, you know? Uh-huh. And then they came over afterwards and they were like, the guy starts telling me how the woman had used to be in porn and she had done porn with Ron Jeremy and that wow. they love to bring comics back to their house <laughs> to have threesomes and did I want to go? And comics I was like... Comics Sally with blonde hair. <laughs> oh, no, I mean, I think they... Whoever, because I had heard stories about guys going... Oh, really? Yes, oh, going wow. back with... And I was just like, oh, thank you so much. I would, but my husband's here. <laughs> he like happened to be over at the bar, but I was just like, oh my God. Thank you for the offer. You're yeah. so polite. I could see like if you had, you would have like sent them a thank you card the next day. Thank you for a lovely time. Thank you for a lovely evening. I, I see where you got your, your Ron Jeremy skills. <laughs> oh, yeah. 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 Oh man, I also I also didn't go. Maybe we should have. No. Should we do a year where we say yes to everything, including threesomes? <laughs> just kidding. I don't, nobody's asking me for threesomes anymore. <laughs> me neither. I know. I'm just kidding. Just kidding. Just kidding. Okay, I'm sorry. Come on. You ready for my quick aid? Yes, Jen. Sally. When we're talking now that we're talking about things that we maybe should have done or never got a chance to do. Uh huh. Okay, one thing that I never really understood was late night booty calls. Because I, nothing. Were you just really tired? Yes, there's nothing I love more (laughs) than sleep. And I can't imagine what would make me, if I was already home, like if I was out, okay. But if like Uh I was home, like what would make me want to leave my house at 2 a.m.? I can't. Oh no, I'm not going anywhere. Right. If that person needs to come booty calls, you need to come to me. Oh, And this is pre-marriage. Yes. Wait, a long time ago, <laughs> but I would never just like be like, okay, I'll be right over. Yeah, no, 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 no. I once I met home, I'm not going anywhere else. Yeah, this story is from an article in USA Today by a writer named Jen Walsh. I can't imagine how pissed I'd be if I left my house for a booty call at 4 a.m. to go to some guy's house and then he didn't answer the door. And that is what happened to 29-year-old Taja Russell in August of 2019. So she got a text from a guy she'd been boning asking her to come over. But when she got there, he'd already fallen asleep. And so she was sitting outside his home, like having driven all the way. (gasps) Apparently it was kind of far. And she starts calling him and texting him. And she's getting angrier and angrier at this motherfucker. And her texts got pretty... Fierce. Um, she, her texts were like, D, I see you want to die and you wasted my money to come out here. And then police say what Taja did next was go to the convenience store nearby, buy lighter fluid, matches, and a lighter, and then go, she set a fire in his doorway and then ran. Whoa. So the guy who they don't name woke up around 4.30 to find flames blocking the exit from his smoke-filled house he escaped by climbing out of a window 
And then he ran to the police station, which was like two tenths of a mile away. And the police say he was covered head to toe in soot and ash. And he was wearing only a t-shirt. He went to the hospital um, and was released. He was, he was fine. Oh, good. Firefighters came to the house. They saved his dog. And, <gasps> oh, but the residents, I know the residents and its contents were completely destroyed and police then learned of the text sent by Taja to the victim, which included also uh, eight missed phone calls. And the man said that he had invited her to his home and stated she was a side chick oh. that he had been having a sexual relationship with. And Taja is being held on charges of attempted murder, aggravated arson, endangering, and criminal mischief. Oh, shit. And that is exactly why you, if you want the booty call, you travel. You come to me. And actually, okay, so this is actually the second time in 2019 in the same town that a woman was accused of setting a fire in a man's home. Another woman was charged with aggravated arson and other crimes in April. According to police, she confessed that she was engaged in a threesome at her boyfriend's duplex and then became angry when he sent her home and the other woman stayed. Holy shit. Those are some balls. Yeah. And so she went to the exact same gas station and bought lighter fluid and matches. Dude, did the gas station just have like one of those like (laughs) displays set up by the cash wrap? It's like... Jilted lover? Yeah. (laughs) Are you feeling hot under the collar? (laughs) <laughs> We've got your We've answer. We've got something for you. So that oh my is God. my quickie. Hey, Sally. Yes, Jen? Are you ready for a crazy story? I'm, I'm ready. Okay. I have feelings about this story, and Ooh. I will share them at the end. Okay. Oh, man. Feelings. <laughs> um, this, so this came from i'm not even gonna lie and say like the article came first i was gonna say an article for orange coast written by matthew heller but most of it (laughs) came from an episode of snapped killer couples oh i like it you're going back to our roots for our one year anniversary special (laughs) bringing it back home okay in uh, Las Vegas, Nevada. Have you heard? I have heard. I've actually never been. Oh, really? Mm-hmm. Ben and I went on our honeymoon. <laughs> really? Not just to Las Vegas. We actually were, It's a long story. We were hiking. And, that sounds right. Uh, yeah, we went for this backpacking, <laughs> this long backpacking trip. It was supposed to be three weeks long. We were going to hike this whole trail. Uh-huh. And then about a week into it, I was like... I, I need a fucking break. I, I'm so stressed out. I had just taken the bar exam. I was like, oh, I can't. I can't. I, you need to stay in a hotel. I need to go to a hotel. I need to. And we had planned like to go to a, a winery at the end of this hike. but we, So we had reservations. But I was like, I just can't do this. I can't yeah. hike every day. It was going to be a, a big, long thing. And so Ben was like, all right, that's fine. And so we, we hitchhiked. hitchhiked. We hitchhiked. <laughs> oh, God. Off of this mountain, we went and we got we got a rental car and we were like, let's go to Vegas. And oh so we God. actually had no clothes because we had sent everything to this this winery that we were going to be at at the end in like three weeks. And so because all we had was our backpacking stuff, so we went to like a Kmart and bought these like cheap Aww. clothes. And we went to Vegas for a couple days and and then we were both like, this sucks. And so then we drove up the coast to San Francisco. We went to San Francisco and then drove down down the coast, like went to Big Sur and 
um, and camped and, uh, and then we finally got to our winery and it was lovely, but yeah, <laughs> Whoa. <laughs> it was kind of crazy. That was a track. It was a track. Sorry. That was a, Oh no. I mean, no, I don't mean like the story was a yeah. track. <laughs> well, that was a, exhausting. That was a <laughs> I also went once with my girlfriends from college and we got kicked out of a, like a male strip club. <laughs> For dancing? Is that what happened? Because we got kicked out of a male strip club, my sister's bachelorette, for dancing. It was not for dancing. It was because Uh, one of my my friend Bethany passed out. Oh, that'll do it. (laughs) No, we were just, everybody was just feeling the music and was dancing along. They're like, you can't do that. The dancing is for the paid dancers. Sit down. And we're like, but we're having fun. And they were like, you need to leave. So we left. And then I remember my sister was like, what is this fucking footloose? (laughs) (laughs) It was a time. (laughs) Okay, so let's start. Okay, so in Las Vegas, Nevada, on September 17th, 1998, police received a 911 call. Okay. Sandy Murphy had found her boyfriend, Ted Binion, laying unconscious on the floor of their Rancho Palomino home. Uh, But when the police got there, they were too late because Ted Binion was deceased. Okay. So who was Ted Binion? That's what I want to know. Do ya? 54-year-old Ted Binion was uh, was like Las Vegas famous. Okay. Um, He was very well known because he was a wealthy gambling executive and he was one of the heirs to the famous, I wouldn't know this because I don't know Vegas, but the famous Binion's Fortune Casino. Oh, okay. Yeah. Have you been? You know about it? I I have heard of Binion's Casino. I don't. Oh, okay. I don't know if I've been there or not. Yeah. So his family, they say that his family basically built Las Vegas. Okay. You know, so he was very uh, powerful and wealthy in Vegas. So when the police found him, they had found an empty bottle of Xanax laying next to him, some foil wrappers with black tar heroin in them, and a cigarette lighter. So it looked... Very much like a drug overdose, like an obvious drug overdose. And uh, Sandy was like very frantic and um, she was crying a lot and the police were trying to question her, but she couldn't even, she couldn't talk. She was so distraught. And then they finally calmed her down and they needed to ask her more questions because the police had a suspicion that there had to be more to the story, that this was not just a drug overdose. You know what? They were right. They may have been correct. We don't know. We don't know. Okay. So Sandy Murphy was born in 1972. She was raised in a working class family in a suburb of Los Angeles. And her family was just like a really great family. Her father was a repo man and her mother was a homemaker and they they lived modestly. As Sandy says, they were the epitome of what good parents should be. Her mom was home every day after school. She was always involving Sandy in extra curriculum activity. Mm-hmm. She was on the PTA and her dad worked hard. He went to work every day. Their whole family was just about family. So she grew yeah. up in, in a good home. Because of her father's good work ethic, she was became like a very hard worker and she worked with the family business at a young age. She worked. She was repo a repo business. lady? Yeah. Okay. Um, and But what's crazy is that even though she, you know, worked these tough jobs, mm-hmm. you know, in the repo business, she was actually a very beautiful girl. At 17, she was a runner-up in the Miss Bellflower pageant. So she was multifaceted. She was a beauty queen? Yes. <gasps> she was a beauty queen and she was also a 
a surfer. And um, okay. so there was many sides to her. But she didn't graduate from high school because she had missed classes because she had actually started her own business, an aftermarket auto accessories business with a family friend. Wow. So yeah, this was all in high school. And her, her friend said that she was very scrappy mm-hmm. uh, and everyone keeps saying how hardworking she was. And when she was 23 years old, her and her girlfriend decided to take a break from working so much and go to Vegas. Go to Vegas. Sometimes you need to take a break, right, Sally, and go to Vegas. So they took a weekend trip and she was playing blackjack and she was really loving gambling, having a great time, but she got way too deep in it. And in one night, she lost $12,000, like all her money playing blackjack. And so she couldn't even afford at that point to even fly home. She was like, fuck, what am I going to do? Oh. So, wow. Yeah, isn't that insane yeah. at 23 to lose? I don't. I didn't have 12 grand at 23. No. That's crazy. <laughs> Especially, you know, back then, you know, this was like in the 90s. Mm-hmm. I mean... I was around in the 90s. So so Sandy decided, like, I'm going to make all this money back. Yeah. Being the scrappy Sandy that she was. So her girlfriend was actually a a clothing designer and had a suitcase full of lingerie, um, I guess, with them for some reason. (laughs) So Sandy came up with this idea. So she decided to go to a strip club that was called Cheetah's. Uh-huh. Um, kind of like the Leopard Lounge, but right. this is actually a strip club <laughs> called Cheetahs. And she sold the lingerie there, so to the dancers. Oh, okay. And and also to patrons that were, she was like, oh, then you might like that, you know what yeah. I mean? And and she was a beautiful girl, you know, selling sexy clothes, so people were buying from her. So, but when she was there, she met Ted Binion. Like I said, he was the son of Benny Binion. Um, the found who is considered the founding father of Las Vegas. His name was Benny Binion. Benny Binion. <laughs> <laughs> Benny Binion. What a name. No, Benny Binion. Um, <laughs> so both, uh, both Ted and his father, Benny, had reputations for being totally wild, just like mm-hmm. that Las Vegas guy, late nights, gambling, strip clubs, all that stuff. Sounds exhausting. Yeah. Um, and so they're definitely not going to bed so ted took a liking to sandy immediately you know and um he tried to give her a thousand dollar tip but not only did she turn him down Mm -hmm. which is crazy because she needed money at that point but she was like she turned down the money and then she threw the money in his face and then apparently at that point he was just like i'm in love in love yeah (laughs) yeah so they started dating immediately, and they became um, what everybody's called Vegas's hottest couple. So within days, so she, I, I, it doesn't, according to the story, it doesn't even look like she went back to L.A. where she right. like her home. She just moved in with him, and then all of a sudden she had like cars, an expense account. They ate at fancy restaurants. Like she went from losing everything this one night to like yeah. a couple days later having everything so what happened to her business isn't that crazy i guess she was just like kind of fuck my business i have less money right <laughs> i don't know <laughs> um so 
I mean, she was um, also, what, like 23, you said? So, yeah, yeah, yeah. She was like, let's see where this takes me. So through Ted, she had met one of Ted's good friends and mm-hmm. sort of a business partner um, whose name was Rick Tabish. So to tell you more about Rick Tabish, um, he was born in 1965 in Missoula, Montana. Rick was the son, all these guys and their rich dads, dude. Mm-hmm. Uh, Rick Tabish was the son of a wealthy oil distributor, and he was supposed to go into the family business, but Rick was kind of a troublemaker. He was like, I want to go be a bad boy in Vegas. Yeah. Well, even before that, he would get into trouble all the time. And But because his family had money, of course, he would get out of the trouble. Right. Because that's how it works in America, guys. <laughs> so, uh, <laughs> but in 1987, Rick Tabish was arrested for drug smuggling. He was what? smuggling, yeah, he was smuggling cocaine from Arizona to Missoula, and he was supposed to serve 10 years. Mm-hmm. But of course, his lawyers got it down to three years probation. Of course. Womp, womp, womp. So after that, he decided that he was going to turn a new leaf and be legit and mm-hmm. whatever. So he started a construction business. Business actually did really well, but it, he felt like he was like the business was outgrowing that Montana. Uh-huh. So in, when his probation ended in 1997, he decided to move it from Montana to Las Vegas and he started a new contracting company. So that's how he met Ted Binion because he would go to like A-list clubs uh-huh. to, which is smart, you know, to mingle and meet all the rich people and get business contacts. So right. that's exactly what happened. He met Ted Binion and they hit it off immediately because they were both kind of like good old boys, mm-hmm. rich douches with cool, like rich dance. Yeah. And they became good friends. And then Sandy through Ted met Rick and then Rick and Sandy became good friends. Mm-hmm. And they became even closer because one thing that they had in common was that they really worried about their friend Ted because Ted was a hardcore heroin addict. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. Like I said, he liked to party party and strip mm-hmm. clubs and all that stuff. Like him and Sandy's relationship was starting to fail because of his addiction and she wanted to help him and Rick wanted to help him, mm-hmm. you know, because they were good friends. So they started to lean on each other. Uh-huh. And they're like, what can we do <laughs> oh my to gosh. help him? What can we do? Maybe we should Should sleep we have together. sex? <laughs> Let's just have sex. Let's sex him back to hell. <laughs> So, of course... Did it work? Yeah. <laughs> no! <laughs> so, <laughs> so, Sandy and Rick started an affair. Surprise, surprise. They were definitely hiding their relationship from Ted, obviously. Now, here we are back at Ted and Sandy's home. He was just found murdered. I'm sorry. Freudian slip. He was just found um, suspiciously dead dead. in his apartment. (laughs) And like I said before, she was too like upset to speak. Yeah. And then they ended up like giving her treatment to calm her down. Mm -hmm. And then once she was calmed down, then she started to talk. And she told the police that the night before that he had bought twelve balloons of heroin, which is insane. Is that a lot of balloons? That's a lot of balloons of heroin. Uh, of black tar heroin. I mean, there's different kinds of heroin, but this one. This is the it's crazy. It's crazy. <laughs> so much. So she, I don't um, know. she said that she tried to make the drug dealer leave. She didn't want him to be there, but of course she was overpowered. She's like a woman trying to tell a man to do something. <laughs> so um, 
So he stayed up all night long doing the heroin, and then he used the Xanax for the calm down so that he could sleep, which I didn't realize, like, I thought the heroin puts you to sleep. I have, I literally have no I idea. The only thing I know about heroin is it makes you skinny, or maybe you don't want to eat. Maybe. I don't know. I just think of, I guess, Kate Moss. Heroin chic. Yeah. Yeah. So, so, but anyway, yeah, so apparently then he, like, took a bunch of Xanax so that he could sleep. And she said that she left that morning, and she saw him on the couch, and she thought that he was sleeping it off. But when she came back that afternoon, she knew something was wrong when he had foam coming out of his mouth. Police, of course, then they start asking around to friends and family, and uh, they quickly realized that it was not a secret that he had a crazy heroin addiction. Right. And everybody was like, oh, yeah. And in fact, he had actually just lost his gaming license due to his drug use. And then, of course, when he lost his gaming license and he couldn't, that was his whole life. Yeah. So his drug addiction got way, way worse. So they're wondering, like, did he do this on purpose? Was this a suicide? But all of his close, close friends say no, that no matter how sad he was, he never would have done this on purpose. But the medical examiner deemed it an accidental overdose. Okay. Because, I mean, that's an insane amount of drugs in yeah. the system. But he was also a crazy addict. So nothing suggested foul play at all at this point. So right as they were getting ready to close this case, something happened. On the night of September 18th in Pahrump, Nevada... Do you know? I don't. I don't either. Police get a phone call from some people calling to complain because somebody is out in the desert in this neighborhood. Well, it's like the desert near the neighborhood digging at night with big, huge pieces of equipment. Like, you know, I don't know the names of digging equipments, but just like an ex- excavator excavator uh-huh. i should know because my son was obsessed i know with i was like you know them a, because you had a small boy at, at one, one point time. i knew the names of 20 trucks <laughs> a backhoe uh yeah <laughs> but when the police come out there to confront this crew that was digging they didn't want to tell police what they were doing the foreman did tell the police his name it was rick Tavish. Mm-hmm. And when the police searched the truck, they found out that he had dug up. This is so weird. He had dug up millions of dollars worth of silver bars and coins. Like a fucking pirate. What? Like bars of silver. Seven or eight million dollars worth of silver. Isn't that crazy? Yeah. So the police, of course, were like, what the fuck is this? Right. <laughs> People do this? And so, but Rick told them that the silver belonged to his recently deceased friend, Ted Binion. He told them that when Ted had recently lost his gaming license, he lost the ability to store the silver in the casino. I guess he was able to store it in the casino vaults. Okay. Um, so, But then once he lost his gaming license, now he had to put all of this somewhere. And he, so he needed a place to put it. And he said that he trusted Ted and he asked him to build him an underground bank for them, mm-hmm. which he did. And he told Rick that if anything ever happened to him, that I need you to go and dig this up and move it immediately. But okay. like to where? To another underground right. bank? I don't know. So... They arrested him, and people became even more suspicious about Ted's death because the person that bailed Rick out was Sandy. Mm -hmm. And they were like, what the fuck? So 
Ted's family also said they didn't trust either one of them, that Sandy was a gold digger and that they were furious when they saw that he had actually left everything to her and his will. And they weren't even married. So it is kind of crazy that he would do that. And they said that they knew that she was only with Ted for his money. And the silver thing obviously looks suspicious as hell, but there was still no direct evidence showing that they had murdered him. Right. So the Binion family became super frustrated and they hired their own private investigator, a woman named Becky Hart. And she went back over all of the evidence. She was trying to establish a motive. Mm-hmm. Um, and so she was able to prove that they were having an affair. She was trying to establish that the affair was the motive to want him dead. And she went over their finances and she saw that they had gone away on like weekend trips and stuff. And when Sandy signed the hotel receipt, she signed the Mr. and Mrs. Tavish. Wow. Isn't that crazy? So she could show that there was motive because they were in a relationship and they had a lot to gain if he died. But wasn't he already rich? Rick? Yeah. I don't know if... So I'll... um, Okay. Sorry. So... um, Just like, how much money do you need? (laughs) And then also the housekeeper, when Becky Hart interviewed the housekeeper, she told her that Sandy had asked her to take the day off on the morning that Ted died. So that was interesting. And her manicurist told her that, like Sandy's manicurist told mm-hmm. her that her and Sandy had, were talking a few days earlier and Sandy said something like, Ted, Ted's going to be dead any day now. He's just going to overdose. And apparently one of Rick's good friends said that Rick had asked him how to get rid of a body or how to get rid of somebody. Okay. So still no direct evidence. Until they re-examined the autopsy report and they found that there were small traces of heroin in his stomach and he smoked heroin. Uh-huh. So it doesn't make sense that it would get in his stomach. And also, I have to also point out that Ted's family hired another medical examiner okay. to do this. The report changed from natural death to murder. So now the police are actively investigating Rick and Sandy. By now, are they're in a total open public relationship. Like yeah. They're not even hiding that they're together. And Ted's credit card reports show that Ted was unknowingly paying for all of these trips that they had been taking together. Um, and he didn't... dirty. Yeah, it is real dirty. And he didn't suspect that the two of them were having an affair together, but apparently he did suspect that something was going on with Sandy, so he had actually hired somebody to follow her. <laughs> all and, right. Yeah. And so... <laughs> hey, why not just break up? Oh, and another thing about Rick, you said, didn't he have money? Yeah. It turned out that he had actually owed the IRS more than $100,000 and he had a very large loan that was due, like the payment that was due yeah. two days before Ted's death. Wow. Okay. So, yeah. So they were able to get, um, now that they're actively investigating them, they were able to get warrants for their phone records. And they saw that upon finding Ted's body, Sandy didn't call 911 first. She called Rick first. Mm-hmm. And so when they learned about Rick's narcotics charges back in Montana, they were like, oh, well, this guy knows everything about drugs. He could have easily have staged this death. You right. know, he's a drug guy. He's into drugs. <laughs> and then 
Ted Binion's estate attorney, so it's like their family lawyer, called the police to tell them that the day before his death, he had called him and told him to take Sandy out of his will. (gasps) And he said that he had found out about the affair and he wanted her cut out. And not only that, but he told him that if he dies, it was Sandy that killed him. No way. That's what he said. And, oh, but but he wasn't able to sign any of the changes before he died. So Sandy was still left with everything. And so now, 10 months after Ted's death, police believe that they have enough evidence to arrest Rick and Sandy. So on June 24th, 1999, while Rick and Sandy are grocery shopping, like in the middle of the day, the Las Vegas police swarm with 20 cop cars and, love and arrest them. Can you imagine if you were a cashier? It would be your best day at work. Yeah. Holy <laughs> shit. <laughs> so... They said they were charged with the murder of Ted Binion and the plot, charged with the plot to steal from his home and his silver vault. (laughs) (laughs) Silvers. And a year and a half later after that is when the trial started. So the prosecution claimed that Rick was motivated by a mountain of debt and that Sandy wanted to be with Rick but still wanted to maintain her lavish lifestyle. Mm -hmm. And that when Ted discovered the affair that he was going to cut her off. So this prompted the couple to kill Ted so that they could be together and she could keep his estate. Yeah. And on the day that Ted died, they say that they believe that they forced the Xanax and heroin down Ted's throat. Like I said, the Binions hired their own medical expert. Mm -hmm. He said that not only did he find the evidence of the drugs in his system, but he said that he found evidence of suffocation. So it wasn't oh, just drugs. Okay. It was suffocation. And then the defense said that everything was circumstantial mm-hmm. and that Sandy was trying to save him, not kill him. They were like, you know, she asked any of her friends. All she wanted to do is get help for him. You know, she was so distraught. Right. She did whatever she could to save him. On May 19th, 2000, both Rick and Sandy were found guilty and sentenced to life in prison. But this was not the end. <gasps> Sandy ended up appealing, uh-huh. and she hired a famous lawyer, Alan Gershowitz. Uh-huh. I don't know exactly what he's done before, but that name sounds very familiar. Dershowitz? Is it Dershowitz? I don't, well, there is an Alan Dershowitz, but... Maybe, maybe this was all a typo. <laughs> it is Dershowitz. It I is said Dershowitz. Gershowitz. <laughs> oi, oi, oi. Okay. His most notable cases include O.J. Simpson trial. He was on the Dream Team. That's probably where you know him. He was a member of the legal defense teams for the prominent sex offenders Harvey Weinstein and Jeffrey Epstein, his personal friend. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. So, barf. Yeah. Okay. Alan was able to prove that Ted's family had actually paid off all of their witnesses. They They were given... Over $100,000 in rewards mm-hmm. for their testimony. So the lawyer that said that he called the night before, the friend that said that Rick asked how to hide a body, oh. the manicurist, the housekeeper, and the medical examiner that they hired right. to say that there was suffocation and the heroin in his stomach. When he was able to prove that all those people were paid off, the judge ordered that the cases be retried. Yeah. And then new witnesses 
witnesses showed that there was no evidence of suffocation and that all these people's testimonies were bullshit or influenced. Yeah. And so everything was deemed circumstantial. All they had was circumstantial evidence and the witness tampering in the first trial. He found them not guilty of the murder, but he did find them guilty of conspiring to steal his fortune. Oh, the the silver. The silver, yeah. So Sandy was then sentenced to time served Uh because she had already been in jail for six years. Yeah. And she was released in April of 2005, and Rick was paroled in May of 2010, having served 11 years. And Sandy is now living in Laguna Beach, and she is happily married, and she's the owner of an art gallery. Wow. Isn't that crazy? So here are my feelings. Okay, I want to hear your feelings. When I read this article about her being an art, owning an art gallery, there's a million comments underneath it. like, murderer. Yeah. But the fact that the family paid off all these people, I think that they just wanted her to not get the money. Right. But you know how I was like, they were only dating. Why would he put her in the will? Yeah. But he did. But he did. He did. Right. And it's not a secret that he had a very bad heroin addiction. Right. I think that she was a bad girlfriend, a shitty girlfriend, having an affair and using all of his money. They did probably want to take all that silver and run away. But I don't think it's unreasonable to think that he had overdosed. Right. Well, without those witnesses and without the heroin in his stomach. Yeah. Yeah. There's no evidence that they did anything. Yeah. I mean, I I don't know how you could have a jury say, oh, well, yes, this looks suspicious, so they are guilty. Like, that's just not how the justice system works. And that's, you know, none of us know. Yeah. And when she was talking to her manicurist and said... Like, he'll be dead any day now. Yeah. Like, like, that's something that you could very well say about someone that's spiraling killing out. themselves yeah. with heroin. Yeah. You know, it's like if you watch Intervention, they say that every day right. about all, every, all the people that are addicts. And even if she did tell the cleaner not to take the morning off, it's because she knew that the night before he did 12 bags of fucking heroin. Yeah. You know, she was probably like, don't come in because you don't want to see, like, he's right. laying on the floor right now sleeping it off so i mean i just think that there is enough doubt right all the evidence is circumstantial that i i personally don't think that she murdered him but i do think that she did had some shitty behavior right that's just my thought yeah but i feel like the snapped killer couple Uh was definitely trying to paint the picture that they had done this together and they got away with it yeah but i don't i don't know me personally i don't think that they did it right yeah there's certainly not enough for anybody to say like that's just and if you can't say for sure then you can't convict somebody exactly so i mean what are you gonna do me um (laughs) crazy that's crazy that was a good one dude isn't it nuts it's really nuts Hey, Jen. Hey, Sal. Are you ready for a love story? I am. Okay. Awesome. Okay. So I got my information from an article in The Guardian by Homa Khalili and in The New York Times by Ruth LaFerla. 
today.com by Donna Fredkin, and then an article interview with a couple interviewing each other. Okay, so do you remember last week when I told the crazy story of Christy Salters Martin, who was, she yeah. was a boxer that survived all that abuse and the attempted murder? Yeah. Okay, so when Ben sent me that story, he also sent me this story because the memory I was talking about the ESPN article that was so beautifully written and I think everybody should write it. It was like it really captured Can you read it. Huh? You said everybody should oh. write it. <laughs> I think not everybody can write that. <laughs> I think everybody should get out there and write something beautiful. No, you guys should read it. You should read it. It just like captured the story in such a beautiful way and it also really captured West Virginia in a way that you know Ben and I who had like lived there for 5 years really were like this person knows about West Virginia, the uh-huh. writer. So Ben like loves good writing. He wanted to know more about the writer. And so he looked up this woman, and her name is Allison Glock. And he found out that she was born in West Virginia. And he found out not just that, but he found out that Allison also has a really sweet love story of Aww. her own. Nice. So this is the love story of Allison Glock and T. Cooper. So Allison Glock had already had a she had a pretty full life when she was introduced to T. She was a successful magazine writer. In 2000 her writing was in the Best American Sports Writing um, anthology. In 2004 she'd written a, a memoir called Beauty Before Comfort about her grandmother's life in West Virginia and the New York Times had named it a notable book and it won uh, an award called the Whitting Award. So it was she was doing great. She was had a successful career. She was 40. She had two daughters. She had actually gone through a divorce with her kid's father after eight years. And when she was writing about it, her first marriage for Oprah Magazine, she described her marriage as less a nurturing partnership than a convenient way to split a mortgage. Uh-huh. Um, she said it had been unhealthy for years. She She writes about it. She says... She says, I made the mistake of focusing on appearances, spending my time arranging flowers when I should have been taking a long, hard look at what we were and what I'd become. I latched on to domesticity domesticity to fill the holes in my relationship. I couldn't connect emotionally with my husband, but I could feed him. I could not make him love me more or better, but I could cook and clean and decorate. I could fold his shirts and pair his socks. In time, these choices made me tight and joyless. I fretted about thread counts and pie crust and all manner of things that did not bring us an inch closer. I did all this, then resented my husband for turning me into a wife. T. Cooper was also a successful writer before he met Allison. T. was born and raised in Los Angeles. He went to Middlebury College and taught high school in New Orleans before he moved to New York City in the mid-90s. He earned an MFA from Columbia University, and in 2006, T. wrote the novel Lipshit Six, which was a huge hit. It got a great review in the New York Times Books Review, and the novel was chosen as the best book of 2006 by The Believer and The Austin Chronicle. Mm. So it wasn't surprising that when the New York Times decided to invite a group of writers to submit music playlists for the paper in 2008, both T and Allison were among the writers who were asked to contribute. And Allison's list included songs by artists like Jonathan Richmond, Patty Griffin, Stars, Sam Cooke, and more. And T's list included songs by Lupe Fiasco, Aretha Franklin, Eminem, Most Def, Dolly Parton, 
our Going. fave, and more. And Allison read T's list, and she felt a connection. And T jokes that Allison just thought he was hot because <laughs> the picture <laughs> was like included. And either way, she reached out, and she was like, writer to writer, I just... I was like, I love this list. And, and we, they just started corresponding in a very sweetly old-fashioned way. Mm-hmm. They wrote back and forth. And they found that they had a shared admiration for Dolly Parton and an attachment to old artifacts, especially those connected with their like family histories. And as the two grew closer, they realized like this was more than a friendship, that it was blossoming into a romance. And, and as it became clear where the relationship was headed... T mentioned to Allison that he had been born female. And T actually thought Allison knew, saying he thought she wouldn't be hanging out with me if she had concerns. He thought, you know, it wasn't a secret. But Allison actually says she has no idea. And then, but she says that the only thing that surprised her was how little it upset her. Mm -hmm. Like she says, she thinks that her lack of reaction was actually due to her age and her life experience. She says, I was a fully grown woman. I had two children. I had sampled a lot of life. She says, I think if you love someone, you love someone, full stop. People evolve and change in ways that are just as profound as gender. And so when Allison eventually traveled on assignment to New York, they met face to face and they had just been corresponding this whole time. Mm -hmm. And she says, when I saw T in person, the air was literally moving around him. It was bizarre. I felt super drawn and connected. And then that was it. Like within a year of meeting, the two were married on a farm near Hudson, New York on February 7th, 2010. They got matching tattoos with the date on it on their wedding day. And T's family mostly accepted his transition, and he knows how lucky he is. He says, some of my parents' issues are about a fear of what could happen for me. And some of it is a bit of heartbreak that being trans was hard for me and that they didn't know. And Allison says that for her family, there was some clutching of pearls and, you know, like a think of the children when she told them about the relationship, but she had zero qualms. She says, once you meet T, you realize how preposterous that is. I just knew my children could see this incredible person and our amazing, healthy relationship and have someone who has turned out to be an amazing father. And her only worries, really, she said, were like, Related to building a family. She says, you know, the three of them, her, she and her two daughters, were like a very tight-knit unit. She says, so my rela- my concerns about T were not whether or not he was transgender or Jewish or not or short or not. <laughs> and But how would he integrate into our family in a way that was healthy and beneficial? And her daughters were very young at the time. They were only six and seven. And so it just became natural to them. Like they didn't, their concerns were like, T isn't letting me watch TV. Like rather than, oh, T was born in a woman's body. Right. right? And Allison says, the one thing I've noticed now that my daughters are both teenagers is that they are tuned into discrimination on every front. This might have been the case anyway, but the younger one in particular, if she sees someone being teased on the bus for the religion, for instance, that she is the first one to step in and say, that's not cool. And if she hadn't been raised in a house that was so full of difference, she might not be like that. So people who say, oh, the children, as though you are setting them up for a horrible or challenging life. But my answer to that is every child's life is challenging. And the very things that are different can make them into better people. That's exactly right. Yeah. So the two have lived in upstate New York and New York City. And then a few years ago, they actually settled here in Atlanta. Oh, wow. Yeah, where T teaches at Emory. And together, they've written a series of very popular young adult books called Changers. 
Um, And each book explores what would happen if kids had to swap identities at the start of every school year. So in that's so cool. Yeah, I was thinking maybe I Maybe your kids might be old enough. I don't know. Maybe Sully might be old yeah, enough to read it. Yeah, totally. In book one, the readers start, they meet the character who's a 13-year-old Ethan who's just moved from New York to Tennessee and wakes up the first day of his freshman year in the alien body of a girl. And then each book is, each year, Ethan wakes up in the body of someone else. So someone different. It's like an exploration of how that makes you a different person for actually literally walking a mile in somebody else's shoes. And Allison says, as an LGBT family, we are writing content for the kids we used to be. And our main characters are diverse in every way, race, body type, gender, sexual orientation. The two interviewed each other for the blog Diversity and YA, and they had this exchange, which I thought was so sweet. T says, I have a question. Do you think we would have fallen in love if we had met in high school? And Allison said, actually, I do. Do you? I'm guessing no. And T says, why would you guess no? I believe I was the same person I am inside, just younger and dumber and decidedly less sure of who I was. But that wouldn't change the almost magical, inexplicable, and entirely inevitable thing that would have happened the minute I intersected with you in life. Whether 20 years ago or five years ago, I would have loved who you are, your soul, and what have you. And I would know that I needed to spend my life with you no matter what. Duh. (laughs) Allison says, I'm with you. I really do believe love and connection is about the soul, the interior. The exterior can really muck things up sometimes. Not that I don't like your exterior. (laughs) And when she's asked about being in a different family, Allison says, every family is different. Every family has challenges and miracles. And T being trans is the least interesting thing about our marriage to me. Our connection has been the revelation. When you love someone's soul, gender, size, race, ability, background, none of that even matters a little. All that matters is getting to spend your life with a person who reminds you every day that you are not alone. Oh, that nice. That is nice. I love yeah. that story. So they have a beautiful love story, and they're also amazing writers. So um, and look up their stuff. Yeah, and local. So <laughs> Allison Glock and T. Cooper will link to their websites and some of their writing. So that's my sweet love story. I love that love story. Should we uh, do something dumb, something we love? Yeah, let's do it. For something dumb, you were, um, Sally was over yesterday and the kids were swimming in socially distantly, socially distantly swimming in this above ground pool that we have constructed. (laughs) And, um, and I looked on Facebook and I saw, uh, our friend Julie Osborne, who is a standup comedian. Mm -hmm. Um, she's so funny. I love her. She's got like a heart of gold. Yeah. um, Posted the sweetest. She's so funny. And she's, but she's just like. The nicest, sweetest person. The most positive person I'd like met in a really long Mm -hmm. time. She posted a video of her in the car. Um, She was upset and shaken because she was driving in the car, just loving life and Mm -hmm. listening to music and going about her business and, and was in a great mood. And then all of a sudden she looked to her left and these guys were hanging out of their car and they were giving her the the most disgusting, angry look. And then they called her a fucking N-word. Yeah. Which is just so disgusting and 
she was so heartbroken and I, we're, I'm disgusted and heartbroken for her. Yeah. And um, I can't believe this is the world that we're still fucking living in in 2020. And right. in the video, she said that, you know, she's not going to let it break her spirit. She's a positive person. And I know that she is and I know that she won't let it, but it's still just... It won't let it bring her down, but it still just like breaks my fucking heart. Yeah. That such wonderful, amazing, lovely people like Julie are put through such hell for no fucking reason other than the color of their skin. And it makes me sick. Right. What was interesting was in the story that you were just telling, you said that um, her child mm-hmm. um, being exposed to things does make children more empathetic. Yeah. And what yesterday I, I, I when I saw the video and I was like oh my god Sally did you hear what happened to Julie what the fuck I didn't say fuck because my daughter was standing right there but yeah, I said you're not me I said <laughs> oh my god did you see Julie's video and um my daughter my seven-year-old daughter was standing next to me and she goes what what happened yeah and my initial reaction I go nothing nothing and right. then I and then I, I immediately was like no this is what happened. Yeah. And I made my daughter like listen to what happened to Julie. Mm -hmm. And I was like, and it's wrong. This is not okay. And this is not acceptable. And it'll never be okay in your household. And we need to, I don't remember what all I said, but she was like, got it. Yeah. 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 That's crazy. You know, and she's seven and that's kind of, these are things we need to tell our children and we need them to be aware of it because otherwise, how are they going to have any empathy? Right. So that's my something dumb. And then I guess my something that I love, I love Julie. I think she's wonderful. Julie Osborne, everybody follow her because she's so funny. But I also, it's my husband. We forgot to do Happy Father's Day last week. I know. We recorded it. We actually, we meant to. So we meant to do it. But um, so Happy Father's Day, but also my husband's. It's Zach's birthday will be on the day that this airs. So happy birthday, Zach, even though... He is very far behind on episodes, and he won't listen to it for over another six months, probably. But uh, happy, happy birthday. birthday. <laughs> happy belated birthday, I guess, Zach. Yeah. Well, I think that I'm going to say that my something dumb is also what happened to Julie, and it's just, just a tiny example of the aggressions and microaggressions that Black people, other people of color, you know, any minority experiences every day in so many different ways and it's like people have been saying it over and over and have been shouting it and so many people still just don't believe that racism and sexism exists until they get like it's right in their face with something like that and so I'm glad that Julie spoke up about it it's not her duty or her place she doesn't have to share that pain but I'm glad that she did because it was very powerful and I'm glad that you I mean, it was a good example for me of someone talking to their kids about what's happening in a way that was, you know, was appropriate for her age, but also wasn't like hiding the truth of I what happened. I didn't say fuck. You didn't say fuck. I would have probably, <laughs> but, um, <laughs> but I, you know, I think that that is like as white mothers that 
that is our one of our biggest challenges and one of our biggest duties is to teach our children, talk to our children about race so that they yeah. grow up like just knowing about what is out there not well and are not surprised. Yeah. Like are not surprised by the way that we're surprised. And I even I mean I grew up in a household I have a brother who is black. And mm-hmm. so it's not like I shouldn't be surprised by some of these instances of racism, but I just continually am because I've had the privilege of just ignoring it for so long. Yeah. And I can't imagine how painful that is to people around us to be like, oh, you're just waking up to this? Like, you're just feeling like this is a problem? This has been a problem, right? Right. So I don't want that for our kids. I want our kids to to know what it is from the get. So, So anyway, so that is dumb. And I also love Julie, and I love how you handled things with your daughter. And I love that we're on our one-year anniversary. I know. I love that, too. I'm... I'm proud of us. Me too. Yeah. Good Me job, too, dude. dude. Good job, dude. And good job, you guys, for listening. <laughs> yeah, good. I mean, for real. You did great. You did, you did great. You guys have really hung in there with us, and we really appreciate it. We do. We love you so much. And thank you for all of the uh, ratings and subscribing and all this yeah. stuff. Yeah. And if you haven't, please, uh, you know, head on over to iTunes and give us a five star and a little review. We'd love that. We'd love to consider that our birthday present. Consider that our anniversary. We would love that. Or anniversary or birthday. Present. Um, you can always join us on Patreon. We're doing fun stuff over there. You can find us on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, at Dumb Love Podcast. Our website is dumblovepodcast.com and our email is dumblovepod at gmail.com. Great job. Thank so. you. Now get out there responsibly, safely, social distantly with face masks on and uh, do something dumb for love. Dum-da-dum-da-dum-da-dum-da-dum-da-dum-da-dum-da-dum-da-dum-da-dum-da-dum-da-dum-da-dum-da-dum-da-dum-da-dum-da-dum-da-dum-da-dum-da-dum-da